Good evening, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us for another edition of Raising Vibrations Radio. I'm your host, Reverend Raven, and tonight we have the fabulous, the awesome Douglas Warner joining us. Say hi to everybody, Douglas. Hello, everyone. I'm going to do my best to live up to something she just said. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no, I've been watching your videos all day today, and I'm pretty oh. sure you're going to live up to that. You, well, you have you. a pretty thank amazing you. message that you're sharing with people. And let me thank just you. commend you for all of your work that you're doing out there to help. No, thank you. Thank you very much. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Let's just go in for the nitty gritty and find out a little bit about yourself. OK, and uh, I'm going to start. I think all of it becomes kind of important if you, for the story. Um, I'll start way back in the beginning. Uh, born and raised in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, grew up in a Catholic home. I was raised as a Catholic, have a Jesuit education. Uh, went to the University of Missouri where I got a bachelor's in Middle Eastern history. And ironically coming out of college and people are gonna, my parents even said, what are you gonna do with that? And uh, I didn't really have a good answer, but it unfolded down the road. I worked as an artist actually for about three years out of college. And um, one of the pieces that I, I created at that time is at the Holocaust Museum here in St. Petersburg. And another piece it was at the World Headquarters of Care in New York. I think they moved the headquarters to Atlanta, but um, hopefully no, nobody took those to, the, to a thrift store or anything. But to my last knowledge, they're there. And from that time frame, I went and uh, joined the Army. And I was in the Army for 11 years as an intelligence officer. And during that time, uh, I, I served a good bit of, bit of time in, uh, overseas, um, lived in, in Europe for five years, and spent probably more time than I want to, wanted to in the Middle East. Um, and so, after 11 years in the, in the army, and I'll just, there's any of these areas we might, you'll start to see some dots being connected. I was involved as an intelligence officer doing some real time uh, intelligence collection, human intelligence collection. And what it required of me was actually very negative. In fact, it was it, over that time frame, it was, became highly damaging to me. My, my psyche, my spirit, um, it was just negative stuff. Uh, I was proud to serve my country, but uh, it was it was really, it was killing me, honestly, in all sorts of levels. And fortunately, I was after five years in Europe, I was able to come back to the Tampa Bay area and I was still in the army. And I got out, I, I stopped, I quit. And that was the catalyst for me getting out of this because people are saying 11 years you should stay in because you can retire nine more years and i said well, i'm not going to survive nine years so one day uh, this the stress was mounting incredibly i was it was damaging my, my life my marriage and everything i'm driving home i was in the tampa and i don't think i don't know if any of you here know the i know reverend raven knows but uh, the tampa bay area we have the tampa side and the st petersburg side and i was working in tampa living in st pete and i have to cross this bridge across the bay every day 
And at sort of the peak of the stress, I was working here now in Florida, doing the same kind of job. I was driving across the bridge and all of a sudden I broke into a cold sweat, had tunnel vision. I literally, the traffic was crazy. I thought I was going to die. I really did. Later on, and but I'm not scared of heights, by the way. I mean, I jumped out of airplanes for years. Okay, so I'm not scared of heights. But later on, I realized I was, as I had someone explain to me, I was having a panic attack. Lord. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And when I got to the other side, I pulled over. As soon as I got to the other side of the bridge, I pulled over and I said, this, I said, this is it. Now, I'm going to say that that was one of my first really concrete callings because I believe that I've had a number of callings. I believe we all have callings in our lives. One of the difficulties for, at least for me was listening to and paying attention to them and understanding that there's a calling. And I had a good friend of mine who's one of my students, one of my yoga students who said, um, he was an AA, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. He said they have a, a saying there that, when uh, God speaks to you first in a whisper and then a roar, and then with a two by four, depends ah. on what you need. Well, well, that was my two by four because I, was, I wasn't paying attention for a long time. That was my two by four. And so anyway, I got, oh, jumping from that, I decided to resign. And I didn't really have a plan. I didn't have a plan what I, I wanted to do, but I knew one thing. I had to, I had to pivot and this idea of pivoting Doing a 180 is important because you'll later on when we talk about uh, some of the things we're going to talk about, that pivoting is, I've, I've come to realize how critical that is and how significant it is. Is that like I an know, aha moment for people? Oh, it was a big aha moment. It was, it was uh, yeah. And probably I've had a lot of aha moments before that, and I, I wasn't paying attention. I wasn't really listening. I, uh -huh. I just kind of try to think through it, push through it. But this was a big one. Uh, and I also remember my dad, uh, you know, had a heart attack and triple bypass surgery. So I'm going, oh my God, here it is. You know, I'm in, I'm in my thirties and I'm going to, I'm going to die of a heart attack on this bridge. So anyway, I got on the other side. I said, I'm going to, I'm out. I resigned and I became a massage therapist. And wow. that, that just kind of threw a lot of people. And, the, and I, I had to explain to him, I said, no, it makes a lot of sense. I said, I needed to do something healthy. I, I've been doing so many damaging, unhealthy things, not for me and other people that I was working with, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, it was time to do something healthy. And it wasn't all altruistic. It wasn't, oh, I'm going to help and save the world. No, I was trying to do something healthy for me first. I needed to get my energy in order. I needed to get my health in order, my this health, this health, and the rest of me. And here in the Tampa Bay area where I live uh, now, um, we had some massage schools that were really good. And so anyway, I became, I went to training, became a massage therapist. As I come to reflect on this, I, it was a classic case of the wounded healer. Some of you may have heard of that concept. Yeah. Um, and that's what it was. I was, I was wounded. I mean, and, and not physically with a bullet, but you know, otherwise. So I started getting involved in body work and energy work and Reiki. And some of you might be familiar with that and therapeutic touch and what have you. Uh, and that was, um, it was, it was working for me. It was, you know, it was helping me move in the direction I wanted to go. I was doing something positive. Um, I was aligning, you know, energy was, my energy was different, et cetera, et cetera. And that was sort of this, the beginning 
of moving in the direction I'm working in now. And I'm still a massage therapist. I've been a massage therapist now for 28, over 28 years. Uh, still do it five days a week. Um, as part what of did what your family think about that? I mean, you were in the military doing special ops. You know, you come back to the Tampa Bay area and then boom, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to do something positive in the health field and massage therapy. Like, yeah. wow. Well, I have to say my, my, my parents were gone by that point, but my, my wife and, and family and I, um, just to let you know, I have two kids. I have two grown children. I have a grand granddaughter. Um, I have just to kind of so give you an idea what my family is and my wife, mm -hmm. my son is 36. He teaches high school Spanish in uh, San Francisco. And my daughter is a stay at home mom. Um, she lives across the street actually. And, uh, she's 32. But my, at the time, um, I just had my son, and they were supportive. You know, my family was supportive. Uh, my, my parents, my mom and dad, never wanted me to go in to the military to start with. My mom right. was scared. They, they were both World War II. My dad was in the Marine Corps in World War II, so he knew what that was about. And they, they, neither one of them wanted me to do that. But it was something I needed to do. And that was maybe a, a little sidebar story down the road. But um, so doing massage. And as I go along, I, my son's growing and he gets to the age of 15. And by the time he was 15, I was 45. So we were both kind of in this, I would call it a crossroads in life type of thing. And he wanted to, he was trying to figure out what he wanted to do in life. Now, I suspect the same thing for young women. Um, I don't have that direct experience, but I know for a young guy, you get to be around 15, 16, and definitely 18 years old, you've got this thing, you got to, you want to prove yourself. You want to, you want to be challenged. Um, you want to notch in your, your belt, you know, I, I'm trying to figure out who I am to find myself right. and uh, many kids, many young men and women now too, use the military as that, that direction to, to get that out of life. And my Which son is a poor talking. choice, I have to say. <laughs> I well, I, I well, I absolutely. So, so saying that, my son starts talking about wanting to join the military when he gets out of high school. You know, he was going to go to college, mm -hmm. but he wanted to join the military. And I'm in, and I was like, oh, you know, I didn't want to be the dad that says, no, you're not going to do that because that doesn't work. No, but I. I, I was, I thought, what is he really looking for? Now, my son and I um, have a very, very good relationship, tight relationship we always have. I tell him I've only had to pull rank on him a couple of times in his entire life. Um, <laughs> he's, <laughs> but uh, I, was, I was looking for something. I said, I need, a, I need to help him with this. We need an alternative to going into the military. Right. And so <clears throat> I, I put that out. I put that because I didn't know what to do. I uh, put it out. So my habit at the time was um, I live, we have a local library here in Largo, Florida, where I live. And it's, yeah, it's, it's a very it's nice good, one. It's a great library. Yeah. And I'm a big library aficionado. So my habit to choose books in the library was there were certain aisles in the library, you know, where the books were, that I knew I liked. That was the topics I liked. Of course, it was spirituality and maybe history and this type of thing. 
and I was walking down there and my way of choosing a book very often, uh, it was kind of intuitive. Mm-hmm. I, sometimes I'd be looking for a title or a topic, but I was like, I'm just looking for something to read. I'd be walking down and I just said, what, you know, what's talking to me? Well, I'm walking down the aisle of the, one of my favorite aisles at the bookstore or the, or the library. And my, my eye caught a book that had a ribbon bookmark and the ribbon was hanging off the shelf. Nice. And you don't see, and you don't see too many of those unless it's a Bible. Or something. Right. And I immediately went over to it and I pulled it out and it with the title of the book. And by the way, I recommend this book to anyone. It's, it's brilliant. It's called the art of pilgrimage. And I had a vague, I, I mean, I knew, I thought I knew what a pilgrimage, a pilgrim was or a pilgrimage was, you know, growing up Catholic, you, have, you think you have some idea of that. Right. But I really didn't. And so I'm reading through this book and it, it's, it's this guy's, um, the, the author's uh, account of different pilgrimages he had been on and he defined what created, what was a pilgrimage, what was it? And this is a spiritual practice. It's embraced by religions. I mean, maybe some of you in, in the Christian tradition, they have pilgrimages to various holy, holy sites. In the Muslim tradition, they go to Mecca every year. There's a pilgrimage there. So it's it basically a pilgrimage is a journey to a sacred center. That's going to be important. The idea of a, of a journey to a sacred center. It, you're going to see this as a thread in the rest of the story. And I pulled this out and I there was a one little chapter on a, the pilgrimage in Northern Spain that many of you have heard of before. It's the pilgrimage to uh, Santiago de Compostela to, and it's called the Camino, El Camino. Now, actually Shirley MacLaine wrote a book on the Camino and there was a movie with, um, I'll think of his name in a second, uh, made about some folks that went on the pilgrimage to uh, in the Camino. And I read about this and it's only like the most famous pilgrimage in, in the Christian tradition mm-hmm. of, from the Middle Ages. And I never heard of it. So much for my education is what I thought. That's my history major, Catholic, and I still didn't hear about this. Anyway, I'm reading this and it hit me. That's it. We got to do this. That's that's the solution. And I, my, I, in my mind, it says my son and I have to walk this pilgrimage. It was It's 500 miles. It takes about a month if you do it straight through. And wow. it's, completely, it's completely across the, the breadth of Spain. And it date, the pilgrimage dates back to the Middle Ages. So I went home and I, I had read this and you know, I you know, meditated on it and a variety of things. And I thought, okay. I, I, so I pulled my son aside and I said, hey, how would you like to go to Spain? I said, you know, I said yeah, sure, I'd love to go to Spain. Well, and so I said, how bad do you want to go to Spain? And he always, and so we have this kind of relationship. And he said, well, what do you mean? Because he knows dad's up to something. I said, are you willing to walk across Spain? And he saw I was serious. And he said, yeah, let's do it. Now, I had to, I had to sell this to my wife and uh, what have you, because I envisioned this as something my son and I would do. Um, right. Which, anyway, we trained together for months ahead of time we researched and we trained and what have you my vision of this was going to be this was going to be his in quotes rite of passage instead of having used the military or something that would be harmful this would be his his trial by fire you know he's 15 years old 
not too many 15 years old walking across uh, doing this pilgrimage all the way through. And we, we did the pilgrimage. Um, and it was it was life changing. I mean, that's a, that's a whole that's a whole story in itself. And we get to the end of it and uh, took us 30 days and, and we were I lost four toenails and 14 pounds. Wow. Yeah, but he Oh, and I'll kind of anyway. I'm I'm, I'm going to this because it, it really had. It be, I didn't realize the significance of the pilgrimage at the time. It's and it's to this very day. It's still unfolding for me. And we had our, he and I actually had our 20th anniversary of the pilgrimage this last summer. Book the pilgrimage we did. Anyway, we got to the end of it. I remember my son said when he came back and went and started going to school back in the fall because we did it in the summer. We did it in um, June to the through uh, July. And we got we went back to school and he said um he said dad i'm a question he said my friends are asking me is if um i had a, i had a good time on this pilgrimage thing and i said well what'd you what'd you tell him he said i don't know and i he said well, sometimes sometimes not so much i said was it worth it he said oh hell yes oh and he didn't you know he's he's a good linguist he he spoke fluent german because he you know his first five years of life were in germany and he studied in high school he had no he had no spanish but the impact that that had on him what he does now for a living is he he became a spanish major in college and he teaches high school spanish in california so that it had that kind of an impact on him wow um, also one of the people one of the couples that were a young couple that we walked with um they went back to they walked with us for a couple of weeks and they were very impressed with him um you know he was the youngest guy we met on the trail and they went back and ended up having a having a child and they named their boy after my son jason oh yeah so and he's still in contact with them 20 oh, years that's amazing yeah for the last 20 years so this to me was another calling it uh this this you know that book you know you call it serendipity you call it synchronicity i agree with all of that but to me that i call that a calling and i was called to pilgrimage and i think it led to him having his own callings so as we're after the pilgrimage i went into a little detail there because it does lay some some groundwork I, I want to ask you something about that pilgrimage because mm -hmm. that's very interesting. Um, did you guys like sleep on the trail or was there hotels to sleep in? No, that's, a, that's a good point. That's a good question. Uh, no, actually it's a, it's a, it's not an organized event where you get with a group of people and walk. I mean, some churches will do that, but most people, you know, it's self-directed. It's uh -huh. there, it's marked. And along the trail, they are uh, about a day's walk apart there are what they call pilgrim refuges and think of a really kind of a real bare bones hostel okay I, you you get a bunk sometimes you might get a pillow some you got running water but sometimes it wasn't hot but it was a place to sleep so you didn't have to camp that was made a lot easier oh nice yeah so uh anyway so pilgrimage is behind us uh-huh and my my journey is unfolding continually and i ended up getting involved I, i'd done yoga in my life you know just done it then you practiced it not devoted to it in any way but i got involved with the yoga school uh, studio here in st petersburg and 
it was maybe another calling, maybe. Um, but I definitely was, I, I saw this is, what I saw was this was something that I could learn and use as a therapeutic tool in my body work and massage. I, it was something that would, I believe would not only help me, but it would help others to be, because I was seeing how it was helping me. And mm -hmm. I thought, you know, I can use this. This could be another tool in my toolbox for, uh, for therapy. And I ended up becoming a, a yoga teacher. Uh, in fact, uh, I've got the, uh, the highest level yoga teacher around here. And they, uh, and I trained yoga teachers for a number of years. I'm still a yoga teacher and I still teach some yoga classes. Uh, and then from there, it seems like this, this, you know, it's like maybe a flower blooming or layers of an onion, however you want to look at it. I started and I started one of the things that really happened, I believe, through yoga, through all these things I've talked about, is I became less and less in need of the two by four. <laughs> it hit me upside the head. I was getting I was starting to pay attention a little more, you know, oh, also the book thing in the library. Okay. That might have been a whisper. It wasn't like a book hitting me in the head. Right. But I'm starting to learn to listen and pay attention to that the the, the synchronicity and, and the uh, the messages that are around us all the time. We miss most people miss them, most of them. But I was I was getting better at listening, and I started something kept coming up in, under into my radar into my spiritual and mental field of vision. I was meeting people. I was, books were coming my way. I, something that I had been vaguely aware of, and that was the labyrinth. Now the labyrinth, I'm, I can explain, I'll explain that in just a, a minute here. Um, but the labyrinth as another tool in my toolbox, another vehicle for helping myself, but also helping other people listen and grow and do these things. Because uh, I started, I was teaching meditation. As I was teaching yoga, I was getting more and more involved in teaching meditation. Uh, and I was looking for various tools. And I'd studied meditation in the Christian tradition. And I studied Tibetan Buddhism for a number of years uh, here in Tampa Bay area. And I, and then the yoga approach to meditation. So I was looking for, always looking for teaching tools and learning tools to, you know, kind of beef up what I was trying to do. Um, and I, so my career wise, I was doing, still doing body work and therapy and I was teaching yoga and meditation. So I was looking for more. So this, this, uh, this construct, the, the labyrinth literally just was put in front of me over and over again in a very short period of time. So I said, I, I need to pay attention to this. And so I started researching it and it, synchronicity people things just started falling into place and i found um i found I, there's actually a uh, an organization in northern california and uh, just outside of uh, san francisco the only place in the country that actually teaches you how to help up how how to be a facilitator with the labyrinth how can you use the labyrinth to help other people how do you you'll be a facilitator, a director, if you will. Right. Um, and this, and I thought, oh my gosh. And I got involved personally using a labyrinth. Anyway, so I fast forward, I, I did go through the training. I went through the, the basic training and the advanced training for being a labyrinth facilitator. And now that is, um, 
I'm saying as I'm moving forward in my life uh, is becoming a bigger and bigger part of what I'm doing. Um, if you want to, if you're in a Christian tradition, you would say part of your ministry is part of my calling. I've done the massage therapy. I'm over 65 years old. These hands are getting arthritic. I don't know about this, <laughs> um, but um, anyway, the labyrinth is, I, I'm going to say at the heart of what I'm doing now. And uh, so that's the story you now. And that brings me from birth to now, pretty much. Wow. I, I'm really, I mean, I'm amazed. I, one of the things I've noticed while you were talking is you mentioned a toolbox. Like you must have been a carpenter in a past life or you, you really believe in the construction end of all of this. Am I am I picking up that vibe? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I have, well, anybody who teaches anything or tries to explain things to people, I mean, you come up with your, you, you somehow comes out of your, how you grew up. My, my dad was an engineer. Um, and he was a wood carver, ah. and so and uh, so toolbox was something. I'm sure some some or many teachers that I've worked with in various things that my teachers probably somebody else used toolbox, and I just snagged onto it because it, it resonated to me. Right. And, I, and one of the things too is I know it's kind of an overused term these days, but one of the things that I've been trying to do because the fields that I, I'm finding myself in it, it tend to be dominated by women whether it's massage, yoga, um, and meditation, and the labyrinth. I mean, even if you get into the, the labyrinth world out there, most of the people that are teaching this stuff are women. And I, there's, there's no real, I think the reason for that is, is that it requires a, a level of intuition. And it requires a level of uh, sensitivity that sometimes a lot of guys are just not comfortable with. And so when I, I try to use language that can, can relate to guys as much as, as women. I, I love it. And, and you're right. Uh, guys are, you know, we're taught to um, be the man, go out there and do your job and don't feel anything and that type of yeah. thing. But I've seen a shift in this now though, um, especially with the younger yes. generation. There is, there is definitely a shift. Uh, we're getting away from the John Wayne paradigm. In fact, there's a lot of, a lot of young people don't even know who John Wayne was. So that, that might right? be a no, no hit on John Wayne, but I, I think we, we're getting away from the paradigm of, you know, that, which is a good thing. It's yes. part of, it's always been part of what I'm trying to do. Cause I think as you're trying to, to participate in and share and teach and guide people into connecting with that, um, higher consciousness of themselves. I, 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 I quote, or I use the term for uh, Carl Jung, the intuitive consciousness. Some people call it the authentic self or the soul self. And those are all great terms, whatever works for you. I like the intuitive consciousness. It's and everything that I have been doing now that I'm getting more and more aware has been building blocks for helping myself and others connect to their intuitive consciousness. And understanding how that serves us and the labyrinth have come to is i believe in my personal experience is one of the most powerful tools to help us connect with the divine our intuitive consciousness that and it incorporates everything almost everything that i've been learning up to this point 
So. So the Lambeth, a lot of us may not know what that is. Can you explain that to us? Picture's worth a thousand words. Right? Okay, so this is, and I know I got a little, little halo light reflection. Yeah. But okay, so this is one labyrinth. Not all labyrinths are exactly the same. And many of you have probably seen this or something like this somewhere. And just kind of take it in visually for a moment. Uh, and some of you may say, oh, yeah, that's a maze. And so the labyrinth, and I, I'm going to, I'll bring this back up as I speak. So okay. you, might, you don't have to memorize, visually memorize this. But the labyrinth, if you look at it, it has an opening right here. Mm -hmm. okay? This is, this is the, the opening of the labyrinth. It's the, you know, it's the door of the labyrinth. And it is from here, I'm going to get my, reverse, my mirror image in place here. It goes from here, one circuitous route, all the way to the center. Now, I'm going to set this down for a second. So a lot of you may have seen pictures of something like that. And um, if you've done uh, puzzle book, you know, pu those puzzle magazines or whatever. Right. Um, sometimes even in crossword puzzle books, you probably have a maze, right? Where you, go, you try to mm -hmm. you know, follow your way. And the difference, a maze and a labyrinth are actually the opposite, the direct opposite of each other. Because the labyrinth is one circuitous route to the center. You can't get lost. All you have to do is follow the path. Oh, I love that. All you have to do is follow the path and you will get to the center. Now, this is such a powerful metaphor. Yes. There, there are no tricks. There are no dead ends. There's And there's no wrong way. Now, a maze is exactly the opposite. Oh. Visually, at first, it looks the same. But a, trip, a, la, a, a maze, rather, has dead ends. It has wrong ways. And you get lost. Right. In a maze, you lose yourself. In the labyrinth, you find yourself. Oh, that is so powerful. It is. And the application. So the way this is now, I'm showing you a picture. Mm -hmm. The way this is traditionally used, and I have used this, and I'll talk about that, but traditionally this this would be in a very large venue on the floor right it could be set in in stones in a floor it could be i have a portable labyrinth that i travel with it's 24 by 24 foot canvas labyrinth with actually um, very similar to this it's a little bit different it's got some different motifs on it but very similar to this and it is it's large enough to put in the correct space and people will walk the labyrinth walk in and walk out. So <clears throat> what is the labyrinth? How is it used and what have you? But I'm just going to, I'm going to preface this with another, just a little story. Um, I say that I didn't have any experience with a labyrinth before my, what I mentioned. And then I realized when I started doing it, I said, I, I was introduced to this when I was 19. Really? When I was 19 and I was in college, buddy and, my, and I, uh, over the summer, we went, we did a backpacking trip, my first backpacking trip to Europe. And one of the places we were going to was France. And we're going to go to Paris because everybody goes to Paris. And somebody, one of our friends said, hey, you know, if you're going to go to Paris, if you got time, just you need to go to this little town. It's just like 45 minutes out of Paris. It's called Chartres. That's C-H-A-R-T-R-E-S, pronounced Chartres. And it's this medieval 
cathedral and they've got this really cool labyrinth in it. Now I was 19 years old and I had, I've heard of a labyrinth, but I really didn't know I would, what that was. Right. They didn't give us a lot of information and I really didn't do my homework. So anyway, we're in Paris, we're all about ready to leave Paris. And I said, Hey, you remember so-and-so said, let's go to, let's go to this shark place and, and check out the labyrinth. We got a day, let's do it. So we go there really, really nice church. It's an older church, uh, older than Notre Dame, uh, kind of rustic. Uh, I think it was about a century earlier than Notre Dame. So we go into the church and I'm looking around. Of course, I'm thinking it's going to be maybe a stained glass window, uh, mm. you know, maybe a tapestry. I don't know. So we're looking around and we're looking around and couldn't find the, what is this labyrinth thing? And finally found a docent who was, and I didn't speak French. And I was, I just said to the docent, you know, labyrinth, labyrinth, where's this labyrinth? And he looked at me like I was stupid. And he just went, and I looked down at my feet and I was dead center in the labyrinth. Oh my goodness. The labyrinth was in the floor of the cathedral, carved in the stone floor of the cathedral. Now that labyrinth was 42 by 42 feet. I was walking all over this thing. In hindsight, that was a metaphor too, because I didn't recognize the center, which I was in, mm -hmm. because I hadn't walked the walk. Oh my gosh. That is so profound. Yes. Yeah. So how do we use this thing? Again, I said, my preferred method is, is a walking labyrinth. Right. And just as a note, these, these are becoming more popular in, throughout the country. Not everybody knows what to do with them, but they, other than just walk on them. Um, what I do is I, I I'll, I'll explain that in a second. Um, so the, I, how do, what is the labyrinth in general? First of all, this, this motif in its various forms is thousands of years old. In fact, it's not really known how old it really is. The labyrinth in its many forms has been found as an artistic motif and apparently as a spiritual meditative uh, tool in most cultures around the world to include Aboriginal and First Nation cultures. In fact, one of the oldest labyrinths in Spain, in Europe is actually in Spain like a quarter of a mile off of the pilgrimage trail that I walked, but I didn't know it at the time. Oh, wow. It was carved in a big stone. So it's a very old, it's a very old um, tool. It's a very old motif. In fact, I would put it personally in the, the genre, uh, the, again, back to Carl Jung, as an archetype, an archetypical image that has a lot of connective power in our psyche. And and spiritually and energetically. And just again, to look at this, it, you can start to see, and I can, I don't know if we're gonna even have enough time to go through all this today, <laughs> but um, this incorporates a, two huge archetypes or patterns that we find in nature and in creation. The circle and right. the spiral and the spiral. Got and you. The, the circle is, of course, I don't have to tell you, we you know circles are everywhere. In fact, uh, the circle is in all sorts of images or structures and images in creation, whether it's looking at the, the sun and the moon or the trunk of a tree, the rings in a tree, 
or the way birds build their nests, et cetera, the cycles of the year. This is a cyclical cycle, a circle um, uh, image. And, it, or, and it's also why the circle has become, it's always a very sacred archetype in most cultures. The spiral is found everywhere too, from the double helix of your DNA to the structure of the Milky Way galaxy, to the structure of many uh, seashells. So the, yes. the, so, yeah, the, so the, the, the circle and the spiral on an energetic level, on an archetypical level, on a really deep, deep intuitive level, we resonate with that. It's in our, literally in our DNA. <laughs> literally, it's in our DNA. And it also has, as a side note, there's been studies going, uh, being done um, in, that this pattern and its various forms start to they mirror the energy patterns of the earth and some of you may have heard you know there's different uh, in this the study of geomancy uh where they're the and the energy patterns of the earth i'm sure some of your your listeners your the audience today has heard of this and maybe knows a lot more about it than i do but this reflects energy patterns that they have found especially at sites where old labyrinths have been constructed so at various levels, this is connecting. The other thing that this is to me, and, I, and I, it is traditionally, because it's one circuitous path that you walk to the center and you walk back out, it becomes a metaphor for our life journey and our spiritual journey. The other thing is, is that walking this is a walking meditation. It's a walking meditation. And many people walk do walking meditation. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, who recently passed away, uh, Vietnamese Buddhist monk, he has big on walking meditations. Walking the labyrinth has levels of connecting, but I'm gonna say in a, in a broad brush stroke that walking the labyrinth, I call it a soul stroll. Uh, it's, what it does is it facilitates us to listen and connect with that intuitive consciousness. I, I say it's an antenna to the voice of the divine because it if we're using it at, to its full capacity, it's helping us stop the chatter here and open the listening here. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. yes, it, it does. I yeah. I am totally, I mean, it really makes sense. And if you think about it, are we not walking a Lambeth every day of our life? Absolutely. So along those lines, <clears throat> if you look at this and it's, you know, what, looking at a picture is not the same thing as um, actually experiencing it. But if you start to go here, I'm really having a hard time with this mirror image thing. <laughs> but if you see, like, like here, you see this loop here? Mm -hmm. Okay. So you have this, you're, you're walking, all of a sudden you're walking, I'm good, I'm good. And then all of a sudden it requires me to turn 180 degrees and go the other way. Could you see, you can see yeah. how that works, right? Yes, okay. yes. How many times, so I asked people, how many times in your life have you had to pivot? Uh, I can't count how many times I've had to pivot. And I and remember earlier when I was talking about, um, go, you know, getting out of the army and uh -huh. doing, doing, a, doing a 180. Well, that was yes. a pivot. Yes. And. It's, you seem to think you know where you're going, and all of a sudden your path requires you to turn 180 degrees, and it looks like 
it looks like at first blush, you're going in the wrong way. Right. Wait a minute, I'm supposed to be going there. Now, now this is requiring this, this calling or this job I have to do or whatever life is, is throwing at me. I look like I'm going backwards. But all you have to do is follow the path. Because even though at first blush, it looks like you're going backwards, mm-hmm. eventually it always takes you to the center. And the sacred center, so here is the overlap between pilgrimage. And this is a pilgrimage. This is a microcosm of a pilgrimage. It's a journey to a sacred center, your sacred center. So I, I, the difference between a pilgrimage and, a, and walking the labyrinth is, is I, I think it's kind of clever. I didn't make it up, but a pilgrimage, you go out, you know, you go out of your home, you go out into the world somewhere to go back in. The labyrinth requires you to go into the labyrinth to come back out. I'm just, I'm like amazed by this because if it feels like also too, you don't physically have to do this. You could do it mentally in your mind, in your meditation too, as well. You can, it's a little difficult to do it visually, mm-hmm. but one of the things now with, with COVID um, definitely got derailed doing um, live labyrinth walks for a while. Now I'm back into doing those. Right. Um, but what I we those of us in the labyrinth facilitating world, what we did was we could, we would use this type of device and we would do it virtually on a flat platform just like this. And we mm-hmm. would do virtual labyrinth walks. We'd have this discussion that we're having now. All the students would have one of these, something like this. And then they would I would guide them, maybe play music or what have you. And with their finger, they would walk the virtual labyrinth with all of the direction I, I'm going to explain here in a minute. Okay. So you're walking it with your finger, not your feet. Right. But but it goes to what you were saying. There are other ways. If you don't have access to walk the labyrinth, there are other ways to, you know, draw make have another experience with this. And uh, yes, once you start to see, once you start to resonate with the lesson from the labyrinth and the pattern and what have you, you can internally guide yourself through a labyrinth you may not have the same visual effect but it, it, believe it or not having just doing the finger labyrinth has a lot of, of the same effects as walking because what what the labyrinth does and this is just a this is a kind of a basic meditation tool it engages the body and because I, I, how many failed meditators out there you know i've been a failed meditator for many many times Mm-hmm. And because, you know, my nose didn't itch all day until I sat down and tried to quiet the body and meditate. And all of a sudden my nose itches and then my head itches, and then, you know, then I'm squirming. Well, body's trying to get your attention because it's right. not used to ha- not having the input. Well, a walking meditation, especially something as engaging as the labyrinth, it, it, and even using your finger, it does two things. It engages the body. It dispels that physical energy. And it also... Being as focused and engaging as this is, it helps you focus and concentrate because the minute you don't pay attention to where your finger is or your feet are, you'll you'll stray off the trail. So you're learning to focus and, and concentrate and it's being aided, you're, being, you're allowing yourself to draw inward because the body is being entertained to some degree, if you will, it's engaged. Right, I get that. So this, 
So this is one of the advantages of having some sort of tactile tool to help with that. And not, it, you can do it completely internally over time, I think. You know, I think as anybody could with a little practice. Um, even myself, if I don't, I, I still like using the hand labyrinth. Uh, and there's different ones that you can, you can, you know, this is something, um, if, if anyone in the audience, you know, I think, you know, my contact information will come out a little bit later here, but um, if you have an interest in this, there's people who sell wooden engraved labyrinths for the blind, where they can actually follow the labyrinth tactically to follow the groove. You can do it for yourself. Um, I mean, if you don't have to be blind, you can close your eyes and follow it. So you're getting a lot of uh, physical, uh, physiological input, which is allowing you to turn off that external self and open yourself to listening. So how do, how do we, how do, what does that look like? How is this orchestrated? Well, a lot of different, different people do it differently. There's different ways to use this. You know, this is used, and I'm thinking the walking labyrinth is being used now in weddings, in funerals, in divorces, people who actually, you know, have an amicable divorce and they want to, um, have some sort of closure, some sort of ceremony type closure mm -hmm. to a divorce. And so it's starting to be used in ways. Uh, the way I prefer to use it and uh, is, is this, as I mentioned earlier, as a vehicle to open up a conversation with the, the, the divine, whatever you call it, God, Yahweh, Allah, it doesn't matter to me what you call it, the great mother, universal consciousness, but what is a good conversation? What, are, what the, the, the basic elements of a good conversation, I believe is this. Someone speaks, someone listens. You kind of go back and forth, right? Right. If one, if one person is the only person talking, that's not the conversation. That's nope. a lecture or an ego rant. So it, you need to be able to go back and forth. Most of us, when we approach the divine, um, we're, we, I, I, I work with a number of Christian groups. In fact, I have a, a three-day retreat I'm doing here in March, with, virtually, unfortunately. I've done it with them live with the Methodist Church up in North Carolina. So I, I, I speak that language with them. Uh, I, I, I've taught you know, earth-based religion folks and what have you. It, it, the, the spirituality is spirituality. The thread of truth runs through everything. And, uh, but the point is, is that I, I talk about opening a conversation with the divine or God. We have to learn how to speak and then we learn how to shut up and listen. Most people don't shut up. Right. <laughs> Most people are going, I want, I want, I want, oh, please, please give me this. Please give me this. Please don't let this happen. Please. Shh. You only have to say it once. The divine is not deaf. All you have to say it is once. Then you have to listen and pay attention, which remember the two by four, Yes. If you're not listening, you're not you're not going to say, well, I wasn't answered. I wasn't answered. It was because you never stopped talking. So looking at basically this is how to open a conversation with the divine. So what would what I ask my students to do, we got the labyrinth on the floor. And I help them formulate an intention, call it a prayer. Something that's not about the gimmies. You know, give me this, give me that. God's not an ATM uh, or a candy machine. 
but how do I formulate an, a, an appropriate balancing intention? So we, we go through some, some lessons and some practices with that. In, in my opinion, and I didn't make this up either, this is coming from things I've been taught and things that you know, like studied, what have you, is that all great spirituality is really about one thing, letting go. All the great spirituality is about letting go. I agree with that. I totally, 100%. Just from, from the experiences that I had, in the last 20 years of, of watching people go. It is very true. That is a high spiritual platform is learning to let go. I so I'll use, a, I'll use a little story um, that I use. It's a teaching story. Um, in India and other places in South, Southwest Asia, they trap monkeys for a lot of reasons, okay? Usually not any good reason for the monkey. It's not a good look for the monkeys, okay? But the, the hunter knows a couple of things about monkeys. Number one, they're inquisitive. Number two, they're greedy. So one of the methods is the hunter would take a huge heavy jar, clay jar, I mean like 100 pound thing, drag it into the center of a, a clearing and the monkeys are up in the trees watching and what have you. And the hunter very theatrically will take an object, something shiny, maybe some food and place it into the jar. Now the jar is huge, except at the mouth of the jar where it's, it comes to a very small aperture. Mm -hmm. He places it in the jar and then he goes and hides in the bushes. Well, pretty soon, at least one monkey comes down and says, I gotta check this out. So the monkey comes down, he wants what's in the jar. Now the only way he can get his hand in that jar is to close his hand up like that. So he closes his hand and he weaves it into the jar and he grasps the object, right? Right. He's got it. And then when he goes to pull his hand out, he can't get it out because his fist is too big to come out of the opening of the, the jar. Right. He can't move the jar and he can't get his hand out. So the hunter come, comes over and collects the monkey and that's the end, the end of the monkey. Oh. What did the monkey was the author of his own demise? What did the monkey only, what was the only thing he had to do to save himself? Let go. Let go. So the monkey trapped himself. So one of the, using that story as a teaching tool said, what is it? This is usually the intention I recommend. Some, your version, your words, one sentence. What is it I need to let go of? Control. Okay. Okay. You may not know. Now you you may know you're practiced and you right. you've been doing these things. A lot of folks have said, "What is it I need to let go of to be free?" And some people know right off, or they think they know at least. Okay. Mm -hmm. Oh, I need to get rid of this guy or this woman, or I need to get rid of that job or whatever. Right. But if you just put it out there, that that's your that's your part of the conversation. What do I need to let go of? Then I get in the center of the labyrinth here, which is fairly large. It's large enough you could have you know, maybe four or five people in there. That's how big that is. Um, I have two bowls. One bowl has clear glass stones in it. The other bowl is empty. Now, before the student goes into the labyrinth, first of all, they've got their, their question. What do I need to let go of? 
I give them a black stone, a glass stone. That represents your question or what, whatever it is you need to let go of. Some people mm -hmm. know what they need to let go of. Some people don't. Some people know what, to, what they need to let go of, but they don't know how. Some people, their question may be, I'm pretty sure what I need to let go of, but I don't know where to start. So your question may be a little different, maybe how do I let go mm -hmm. of what I, okay. So you, you take the stone, you say this once or twice to yourself in your head, and then with the, the black stone in your hand, mm -hmm. you don't ask, you don't say that anymore. You'd be quiet, internally be quiet. And you walk, then you begin to walk the labyrinth. When you get to the center, you release the black stone into the empty jar and you collect up a clear stone. The clear stone, I mean, it's kind of obvious, would represent whatever it is you take out of the labyrinth. It could be, you could say, what's the answer to my question? It's uh, clarity, what have you. And you walk back out. And at that point, I would have some, the, the students then journal, and there's various ways to journal. They could write, they could, um, I, I sometimes get out drawing paper and crayons and let them do something you know, more visual. So this, now that I say it, I, I gave you kind of the outline or kind of the blueprint of how it works. There are four stages to the labyrinth. <clears throat> Reflect, release, receive, return. And I would throw a fifth one in there, transform. So you reflected, you created your intention or your question. Then you got into the labyrinth and you released something, the stone, the black stone. Right. You received the clear stone. You returned out of the labyrinth. And then you let it unfold. Don't rush to figure out what that clear stone actually represents. I said, I tell folks, I said, you know, it could take three seconds or three years for that to unfold for you. But listen for it. The transformation is often over time. Every once in a while, somebody, you know, has that snack in the head, aha moment that can happen. It happens all the time. I'm not saying it happens to me all the time, but it can happen. The idea is this is opening you to listen and pay attention to you asked a question. Now you've got to be quiet in all sorts of ways so you can and pay attention to what's going on because the answer may not come to you the way you think it's going to come. And the answer may not be what you want to hear. I get that. Yeah. I get that. So one of the, um, I do a workshop and I just, I just actually the retreat, I told you I was going to be doing a retreat. We use the labyrinth and the church that I work with, they actually have a big 24 by 24 foot stone labyrinth in the floor of their church. And they got a hold of me about three years ago. Uh, they were looking for a facilitator to kind of guide them on how to use it. They had a donor who left them a bunch of money to do this, but the only thing they were allowed to do with the money is build the labyrinth. And they had enough understanding of the labyrinth. They thought it would be a good tool. They actually now have a labyrinth ministry in their church. Um, so anyway, I, I got involved with them and I've been to their church and we've done a retreat using the labyrinth with, for different themes. The last time um, I worked with them, the theme was building spiritual resistance. 
we were in the, the heart of COVID and everybody was hunkering down and really go, everyone was going through a lot. Some people much more than others. And the theme of this one that I'm doing this March, using the labyrinth again, is becoming a healing presence. Nice. Albert Einstein said something to the effect of, you know, be a healing presence in the world. And I remember reading that a while back, quite a while back. And but you know, being a healing presence is that if, if you want to say, what can I do? What can I do? Everything, you know, how can I be of, of help? How can I be effective in the world? And this is something I actually experienced. And I, I think you met in our conversation earlier, uh, Reverend Raven, you, you mentioned your experiences. Uh, but I was a, a hospice in this time frame. I was doing all this massage and yoga and all this other stuff. I was a hospice uh, volunteer for about six years as 11th hour, um, they call it now transitions volunteer, where you sit, you know, someone who is imminent in their, you know, their, their journey, they die within 24 hours, they believe 24 to 48 hours. Right. The belief is that you should not be alone. And right. If there's, if the person has no family, if they, or the family needs to break and they need to go eat dinner or whatever they want, you know, somebody like me would come in and we'd sit with the person who was, who was passing. Um, and at that point, I realized that the, that this was not an easy job. Some people say, well, you know, it's not easy in the sense if you want to, you can, a lot of people could sit there. I know that folks who used to, would do that same job and they would sit and knit or they'd read a book, which is all, to tell you the truth, just having a, 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 you know, a person with you when you're passing, you're going through this is very powerful, but the idea of being a healing presence, what does that mean? And I think the, a big part of it is doing everything we were talking about, learning to listen, learning to channel, you know, the divine energy, the universal life energy, being a, being a channel. It's not so much a doing, it's a being. But in order to be a healing presence, it requires us to do our own personal work. Yes. And the labyrinth for me has been a, a big tool to help me and then help others do their personal work to clear their channels of, and so and to listen to be there to listen and to witness witnessing is a listening witnessing is huge and i found that that was one of the biggest things in you know being with those who are dying is witnessing the second most important time of their life yes <laughs> they, they you know you, you come in and you go out Yep. And, and it's, and I agree with you. I believe that there should be somebody with that person when they're passing on. I, I really do. There is nothing, we shouldn't have to die alone. They say, oh, you, you come into this world alone and you die alone. No, that's not true. That's mm -hmm. not true at all. You're not, no. neither, even if there's not a physical being in the room with that person passing on, there's other beings there that the physical cannot see the unseen beings. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the more, and so if we can translate that, the more intuitively tuned we are as individuals, as we just go through our life journey and we interface with other people, we become aware of what you just said not even not just at the moment of death but we're surrounded by these other you know, other spiritual beings yes. other spiritual energy all the time 
And one of the advantages of the work we're talking about, you know, and this is a meditative process, but meditation is just, this is prayer plus meditation. Okay. Mm -hmm. Call it, it, and that's, that's why I call it a conversation prayer because meditation is just learning to, to, to listen. But when you add prayer to meditation, then you've got something, you've got a conversation and you learn to listen for those answers. You know, it could be, or, or just an intention, you know, give me the strength to, you know, the St. Francis prayer, the, you know, the, uh, you know, give me the wisdom, give me the strength, give me the, you know, the insight. Da, da, da. You're asking for something, but you also have to be open to that. And once you're open, that intuitive consciousness, your higher self is open, which the labyrinth is, to me, it is the key and the lock, the key, you know, the, the key master, the, 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 whatever it is, the doorkeeper and the, the key master, it's both. It helps you open up to listen and to be present both for others, but also for the guidance and the support that you, it's all around you. It's all around you. And, you know, Joseph Campbell, the uh, mythologist that probably many of you are familiar with, who passed away a number of years ago, he wrote The Power of Myth. One of the things he said is he, he said he pitied the person who did not have an invisible means of support. I like that. Yeah, <laughs> I've never heard that, but I like that. Yeah, I, we always say, well, I, he has no visible means of support. No, he has no. What about the person who has no in, invisible means of support? <laughs> I love that. You, you know, I, I like this concept of what you're doing because you're right. Sometimes it's hard to quiet the body to be able to meditate and pray at the same time. And, oh. and especially Absolutely. for beginners, right? So one of the things that I, I agree, it is, it is. In fact, most people that I know, and, and so this kind of got me kind of going a little bit of, not a, a real tangent, but I've been trying for a long time to try to, in teaching something, you know, first of all, bottom line, my belief, especially in coming from the yoga tradition, a lot of things in teaching paradigm is I don't teach anything. I don't have direct experience. in. Mm -hmm. Most people that teach things are teaching out of a book. Right. I read this, but they don't say, well, I read this. No, they're teaching things out of, out of books and for somebody, they heard it and then they start repeating it as gospel. Right. And one of the things that was in, 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 um, impressed upon me as a teacher is if you want to say, quote a book, do it, but just give the credits right, you know, put your footnotes down correctly. It's like, I read this in this place, or someone said to me this, if I say, and I tell my students, I said, look, I'm not going to teach you something that I don't have direct experience in. Maybe that keeps the field of what I can teach this big, but it's authentic. And so trying to teach meditation over the years, when I came and when I finally came into contact with this and learned how to use it, I was, I was a kid in a candy shop. I was like, oh my gosh, this takes, this is so such a powerful tool because meditation, as I see it, is basically two skill sets. Number one is learning how to focus and concentrate. Mm -hmm. And often that's the tough one for most people. Right. When meditation is being taught most of the time in most of the books and apps and everything you find, most of the time, that's what they focus on is learning how to teach you or not even teach you, but give you a circumstance or an environment where you can 
you know, focus and concentrate a little bit. Right. Um, and there's a lot of benefit to that. Uh, you know, it reduces your stress level. It's, you know, most of our stress or psychological stress comes from dwelling on the past or anticipating the future. So right. if you have a way to bring your attention to the present moment, you tend to de-stress a little bit. But then what do you do with that? You've got that new tool in your toolbox, mm -hmm. that ability to focus and concentrate. The second skill set, number two, is to use that to connect with and live out of your higher self. You're, you're, you know, in, in the yoga tradition, they call it the Atman, uh, the, the authentic self, you know, like, who, it depends who you're talking to, what words you want to use, but we're all talking the same talk. Oh, I'll yeah. Call I call it, it flying my high, my fly highing disc. I love that. Okay, perfect. <laughs> so, in fact, I can go back to something here. I think we got a few minutes to one of the things I was exposed to um, years ago in the actually through the yoga uh, uh, teaching some of the scripture of yoga was this concept of the perennial philosophy. And perennial, of course, meaning reoccurring. Okay, and what and this term was actually uh, coined. Perennial philosophy was coined by the writer of thinker Aldous Huxley. But what was the perennial philosophy? It was this: there is a basic fabric of truth that is found in every spiritual tradition. And the early thinkers, if you will you know, in the, uh, the the prophets of the Old Testament, if you want, or the the elders of the of, 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 you know, indigenous nations, uh, the the shamans of old in the yoga traditions, it's the rishis. They they had a direct experience through meditation, through I say prayer and listening, talking, speaking and listening. But through deep meditation, they came to the same conclusion, some basic conclusions. And I've called this a thread that runs through. And the word thread in Sanskrit from the yoga, you may have heard of the word sutra. Yeah. Sutra actually means thread. It's the root word or the origin word for sutures, like you sew up a, mm -hmm. a wound. Okay. And this, the basic sutra is this. It's three parts. In deep meditation, they all came to this, which is really interesting. But this means they were tapping into source. In, in this world of change, apparent change, we, you know, we look around and we see you know, people are born, people die, the, the seasons, and nothing's the same. Everything's always in flux. Yeah, the question was, is there anything that's not in flux? And the three revelations, pretty much the same through these traditions, started like this. In this world of change, I'll go with this. In the world of change, there is a changeless reality. And everybody puts their stamp on it. God, Yahweh, um, you know, Allah, um, you know, Wakantanka, whatever you want to call it, Brahman. Mm -hmm. But there is a there is a changeless reality. Number two, that changeless reality is manifested in each human. In fact, some will say in every aspect of creation. Depends on your direction. In the yoga tradition, that changeless reality, that authentic self, that intuitive consciousness is called the Atman. In Christianity, it's called the soul. And other, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So changeless reality source is manifested in each of us. And third, the purpose of life, not the meaning of life. There's a big, big difference because there's books and books and books talking about the meaning of life. 
meaning is the meaning there is no meaning to life per se but what's the purpose of life of your life one thing to connect with and live out of that higher consciousness everything that we do should be moving us in that direction and that is if you i mean i, I tell students say hey for a few bucks here you just got the, the purpose of life come on <laughs> you know, it's an easy it's a, it's a it's a cheap read here but the, 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 of course that's joking it's not the easiest thing to do um but if you get clear about what you're where you're going you, you think at least you have a direction that connecting with the that's right there the purpose of life right there your authentic sense and everything you do if you use that as a sounding board or a, a mirror for your actions or whatever is this moving me in the direction I say I want to go? If I say my purpose is to connect with my authentic self, my higher consciousness, the divine center in myself, everything else falls into place. Your decisions in life will be more aligned. When things go a certain way in life, you'll be more set, you'll stay centered better. You'll be able to handle the trials and tribulations of outrageous fortune. Instead of trying to work on every little fire that gets put, you know, lit in your lives, deal learning to, you know, where 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 can you find water? If you have water all the time, fire is not going to be your problem. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes a lot of sense. So, I, I, I'm just I'm you know I'm kind of speechless right now, which is really that's a big thing for me. But I I'm totally I'm getting it. I feel it. I understand it. It reminds me of things that I've experienced in my life. Uh, what you said about the three that you know the the source, the soul, and um, you know getting in and out of that. It makes sense. It's it's we come down here to experience things that we can't experience as a source and it's you know it's a it's a refining process um so we're all familiar with how we we make a diamond or nature makes a diamond mm -hmm. okay it starts out as basic hunk of coal a relative relative value right and only under the correct amount of pressure and heat does it actually make a diamond pressure and heat. So without pressure, without resistance, we don't become that diamond. We, you know, the worst thing that can happen is to have a, an effortless life. It, it's not going to be a life that's going to, it's not going to refine you. Yeah. It's not going to strip away the debris, the stuff that not, is not truly us. So you know, when I, I have this conversation many times with students, like, what, what, what's the meaning is but not about meaning of life, because we're all getting so worried all the time, culturally, and not just Americans, I'm talking about pan culture, right. our modern culture, we're worried about what are we going to be when we grow up? Uh, what's my job going to be? What's what, you know, that's how we see our lives as this vertical stepping stone of achievement. And that all seems fine until you're at the last moment of your life. And then you realize, oh, I put my, 
I climbed the ladder of success, but my ladder was up on the wrong wall. And what I was supposed to be doing, <laughs> instead of building buildings and collecting money or what have you, I may have done that. It's not what I did, it's how or why I did it. You know, and so if we said, if in our sites we put connecting with divine, connecting with authentic self, intuitive self, that's it. That's my goal. And as I follow that goal or that purpose, it will require me to do things. You know, I might be do this, I might do that. I've been given gifts, I've given, I've got some talents, I've got some shortcomings, I'm good. and I use those. Am I using those for the right? Is it moving me towards my purpose? Is it moving me towards the center, to my sacred center? Or is it, am, am I doing it for the wrong reasons? And people argue about meaning. Meaning is something that's up here. Purpose is something that's in here. And I'll point to the heart. I'm, this is metaphor. It's not the organ of the heart. We know that. It's heart knowing. Call the difference is head knowing and heart knowing. This is intellectual. It's a tool. The brain is a tool. You know, it has a certain ability to do a, broad, a lot of amazing things, but we're way over leveraged on the intellect in our culture. Oh yeah, we this is this is the tool we need to, to the muscle, if you will, if, whatever the word is, to refine because this this is not about purpose. It's not about meaning. There's a story about Buddha. The Buddha was giving a lecture, a sermon, whatever you want to call it. All these students and out in the, out in the audience. And one of the students said, you know, Buddha, uh, what's the meaning of life? And the story goes, he picked up a flower and just held it up. And they're all looking at each other like, what the heck is this? And, and there was one little monk way back in the back of the audience. And he kind of kind of gave that that little look like, yep, and Buddha was like, he, one guy got it. Mm -hmm. The flower does, the flower has no meaning, but it has a purpose has a lot of purpose yes and so meaning is something that we we, we we seem to think is important because of this this mm -hmm. cerebral cortex thinking but it doesn't have meaning i think you alluded to that you know we come here for a, a purpose not a meaning right so why do we keep looking for meaning when there isn't one because we're wanna, always overthinking things. We're always overthinking. You know, people go, I don't understand, um, you know, why this happened. I can't, you know, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense to your intellect, but it makes sense at another level. And if you were actually connected at another level, you would, you would have more understanding of that, intuitive understanding. Yeah, I, I, I find that... Um... I'm living with my, my, uh, 29 year old son. He's moved back home and, uh, he doesn't understand some of the things that I do. And he, because he's so intellectually, you know, he's very smart, but he doesn't understand what I'm up to and it doesn't make sense to him. And, and so this plays all along with that too. But the, the neat thing is, is that we can all coexist, even though we're not hanging around on that same level. I think your Lambeth would bring that fact together for many people that are on different wavelengths, but yet they can connect right there on the Lambeth doing that. I, and I agree with you hundred percent because one of the downfalls of anything we do in, in, in the realm of you know, trying to teach what this kind of stuff we're trying to teach 
or talk about or live or what have you, is that we tend to default, like I'm doing right now, okay, <laughs> all right, is into talking about it. Yet we're talking about something that you can't actually comprehend intellectually. And as I and I something I it was it was handed to me as, as guidance a long time ago, and I really I really uh, try to embrace it is that the purpose of a teacher or a guide, whatever you want to call it, is not to impart information. It's to or or, or try to or try to offer your experience, you know, to, to your students. Mm -hmm. The best thing that the teacher can do or the guide or whatever, a facilitator. I really like that word facilitator. I kind of back off this word teacher. I like the word facilitator because it, it's not a lofty thing, mm -hmm. but it's an important thing. So as a facilitator, someone helping you facilitate whatever you're trying to do in life is to, because of your own direct experience, is to do the best you can is to put the student in a set of circumstances where they have an opportunity for their own direct experience. That's what I find that this does. It gets, I mean, I have to explain it. I did explain it tonight, but once you explain it to people, then they can, they can, wherever they find a labyrinth, they can, people are creating this in their yard with stones. People go to the beach here and create them with seashells. I mean, you can, there's so many ways to, to actually have an, a, a, a physical experience with a labyrinth or just have one of these. Now, and if anybody wants one of these in this audience, email me, we'll get the email out here. Um, I'll get, I'll make sure I can guide you, at least get you one. I'll email you a copy of one of these so you can have it at home. Um, not, I'm not, there's no money involved there. Um, but that is a direct experience. I can talk about what you're going to experience. I can't tell you what you're going to experience, but I can put you into this, this ceremony, this ritual, because this is, this is a combination of using sacred space. This is, this becomes sacred space, which is a, a, another conversation, sacred space and meaningful ritual. And those things help give us a, an environment for us to have a direct experience. That's the best, that's the most powerful thing I think I can do is, okay, I've had my experience, whatever they are. And if it's something that someone else, I think it's important or someone else wants it, um, let me see what I can do to help you have your own experience instead of just teaching mine. I just put your email address down at the bottom so everybody can see that. And I've yeah, also, I see that. Thank you. Yeah, you're very welcome. And I've also put it in our comment section too, as well. Um, you know, just listening to this tonight, I wish we had a Lambeth here in St. Petersburg. We do. We do. We've got a number of them here now. I know if not, if not everybody, I hope, I assume not everybody listening, watching tonight is um, in St. Petersburg or in, in Pinellas County, Florida, but wherever you are, get on Google this. I didn't think I'd be telling people to Google things, but, <laughs> but this is something that was worthwhile well to Google. Google labyrinths and um, I'll, I'll spell labyrinth for you. If you just, it's L-A-B-Y-R-I-N-T-H labyrinth and just okay let's say you're in toledo ohio where are there you know labyrinths in toledo ohio and i there, i don't think there'll be very many cities around the country that won't have something here in here in uh, pinellas county open to the public we have one down at Passa grill church which is down in Passa grill 
uh-huh. at the southern tip of Pinellas County. It's right. outdoors, done in pavers in the front of the church. It's about 24 by 24 feet. There's one behind the Woodside um, Hospice in Pinellas Park. Very oh, nice. nice. The, the Veterans Administration Hospital has one um, here at uh, in Pinellas Park area too. I think it's technically St. Pete, but uh, so there are ho- there's hospitals are using them, hospices are using them. There are corporate corporate they're being used in the corporate world, and most of the time what they're being used for because most people are not fully trained or educated about it, but they do realize that it's a it's a walking meditation and it's a way to at least quiet. It's meditative. Let's put it that mm-hmm. way. It's meditative. It has healing properties all on itself, whether you know all these little things, these little ceremonies and rituals I've discussed or what have you. You don't have to know all that. It's an experience. And it's just setting you up. Now, if you've got some of this other information and some of this discussion, what that does is it helps prepare the mind to step aside and let an experience happen. And that's what that's one of the big things, because I've been teaching meditation and for a long time and it's um it, it's hard because you know it's like um what's you know, if somebody asks you what's it like to what does it feel like what's it like to go down this roller coaster well you can talk about it all day but you won't know until you go down the roller coaster or somebody wants to learn how to swim and you say well here's 10 books on how to swim and you could read 10 books on how to swim but you don't know a thing about swimming until you get in the water right and then the yep. books, you don't need the books anymore. Nope. <laughs> you so, are, you're having that experience right there in that moment. That's, a, that's, that's all there is to it. So anyway, wherever you are, uh, Google it, where there are labyrinths available to the public in your community. Email me. And I, first of all, I would love to open a discussion with anyone. I, I, have, I, I have email discussions with folks who are all over the country and in Canada. Uh, and actually two uh, in Europe who been my students or just somehow we've connected. And I love opening a dialogue that way. Uh, if you're here locally, email me and I can get you in, in touch with some of the, I'll give you some information about some of the things I'm doing locally. I, I do retreats uh, virtually and in person. I do, I, I do workshops every month. Uh, not all of it's sometimes, some of it's yoga, but a lot of it's not. We're doing a lot of labyrinth stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, now, now that COVID is starting to release its grip a little bit, I'm going to be doing more and more live labyrinth stuff. I travel with my labyrinth. I, I've worked. I've done this all over Florida, up in North Carolina. Um, I tend to. It tends to be um, kind of geographically that way if I have to drive. But anyway, if you you want more information, um, just or you want me to send you. Um, you know, just a copy of this, I can just, I can send you that. So you have it at home, play around with it. You know, you don't have to remember all the little stones and all the stuff I do. Just start working with it. We tend to walk this thing with our finger or on our feet with the same energy if in the beginning, as we go through life, many students, one of the first observations, if I sit down with them and I say, here, just take and trace it. And I do this before I go through a huge discussion. And I've got a lot of people who just start mm-hmm, and they're looking around to see if they're ahead of anybody else and they're going to be doing this thing and they get all done and you can see they're smiling. And, I, and then we have the discussion. I said, how many of you um, felt like you won? Oh, I got people. So you went as fast as you could. That's not the point. 
It's not a contest, but we're so contest and competitive that right. we think we think that that's the purpose of this. In fact, going slowly is the way to roll. Now, I I let them go do it, and I said, how many of you are moving on the labyrinth the same with the same pace you go through life? And most of the time, people who are going too fast and not paying attention, they get off path anyway. They get lost, and they have to start all over again. Yeah. How many times does that happen? Yes, that is so very true. It's, you know, if I can, you know, express this, it's, it's not the destination, it's the journey. Everything. And that, and, you know, we just to, to come full circle back, why I think I was so open to the labyrinth is because that's so many of the, so many of the things I learned in pilgrimage feed right into the lessons of the labyrinth. It has nothing to do with, you know, with my, my son and I walked for 30 days to get to this cathedral, you know, and it was like, oh, that's where we're going. That's where we're going. And we got there and it was like, hmm. <laughs> nice church. <laughs> and then in reflection, it was like, it had nothing to do with the church. No. Think about the, wiz the Wizard of Oz. Right. Okay? Wizard, Wizard of Oz, you know, we got to get to the wizard. We got to get to the Emerald City. Go, go, go. But all these experiences along the trail, the Yellow Brick Road, they get to, what happens? They get to the, they get to Oz and what? The wizard's a, a fake. It's a it's a bald old man with no with nothing. But they gain so much going down it, that path. Exactly, exactly. So there's an overlap between pilgrimage and the and the labyrinth. So I would I, I do hope that um, some folks will reach out to me and you know give me some opinions, give me some feedback of what you heard of. Um, maybe if you've had some labyrinth or pilgrimage experiences, I'd love to hear them. I'd love to hear them. Uh, so earlier you said we could Google, find them. And what if we don't have a facilitator with us? What do we do? We just start walking? Yep. Just start the guidance, if you, if you have this, what, what we've talked about tonight, and mm -hmm. if you just have some awareness of what this thing is about, okay, if you just have some understanding what it's kind of designed to help you do, if you have something that you, if you have something and you may be a person who prays or has you know, prayers or mantras or whatever you want to repeat, that's okay. But the act of walking the labyrinth and, and basically it's a moving meditation. Walk at your own pace. It's not a race, but it's also not walking down the, down, you know, down the aisle uh, during a wedding. You don't have to do anything, you know, specifically spiritual or holy or anything. Walk just one foot after another walk in and walk out and walk as many times as you want and don't expect bells and whistles don't expect the heavens to open and you know suck you up into heaven or anything when you get done or when just be present for the experience and i i, I can't help but believe if you just let go of expectations let go of any sense of achievement just be in the moment of walking You'll have your own experience with it. And that experience will evolve. And that experience is much more powerful, much more significant than any of the, you know, the little rituals or little things that we do or anything even I've had to say. Remember, I was I only say this stuff is to kind of help you jump into an experience of your own. Right. It's all about relation. Of Absolutely. Thoughts. Yes. I, I, I'm just, I'm so thankful that you came on here tonight and that you shared 
your life story with us and your journey, which is just absolutely amazing. <laughs> and, and, and that pilgrimage that you took with your son, that's priceless. It is. And, you know, just as a, a footnote to this, uh, he called me about a week ago and uh, he is going to, on his own, he's going to walk the pilgrimage again. Wow. And I was, and, and I, and I said, you know, and we talked about it and he said, you know, dad, don't, don't be insulted. He said, you know, you know, if you want to come, that's fine. I said, no, 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 no. That was a one-time event. We're not going to, we're not trying to have a reunion on this. I said, no. you know, follow, follow what makes sense to you. And it'll be a totally different experience. But it's in his vocabulary now, in his life vocabulary. And by the way, he never joined the army. He didn't need to. Right. He, he didn't need to. He went on his own path, figured out what he wanted to do in life and is living right. his life. That's absolutely. beautiful. That is absolutely awesome. So well, we, we only have about a minute and a half left of this show. I, I have your email address on there. Uh, if there's people here that are locally listening, like I've seen a lot of my friends tonight on here listening, uh, are you able to facilitate something here? In, in Absolutely. In fact, I wasn't trying to get too advertising here thing or, but I, here's what I going if you're local uh -huh. and even where, wherever you are, um, I am looking, always looking for a place, a venue to do a labyrinth walk which means I just need a space. And, and this, this, the labyrinth I have is really more appropriate for an indoor venue. It's 24 by 24 feet. I have done it in all sorts of environments. But if you, any of you have, <clears throat> pardon me, have, have knowledge of or people you're connected to, and I'm, I don't care what religion or what spiritual direction it is, that's not relevant to me. I mean, it's relevant, but it's, it's, it's not a, an issue here. Um, let me know because I would love to connect with and see if we can set up an event, so set up a labyrinth workshop and a walk. I, I would love to do that. So anyone, anywhere, uh, I do travel, uh, you know, within some geographic, you know, if you, you happen to be in the Yukon and you're watching this, I might not make it there, but uh, definitely the local folks. I would be very interested in connecting with more folks about where, where can I share this? How can I share this with you? I am so thankful um, that you shared that with us because that is something, especially for people that are getting into meditation, uh, they're wanting to learn how to talk to the, their inner self. This is a great opportunity to do it. And it seems like it's a lot faster than sitting on our butt humming all day long. I agree with you. I agree with you. And that, bec that becomes... Um... That, that's my experience. I'm just trying to make this as easy as as accessible as as it can be. Taking the taking the false mystery out and opening yourselves to the real mystery of this connection. Uh, and you know, I'm I'm not I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. I'm not I'm I'm, not, I'm no great meditator or anything like that. Maybe that's a good thing because I had to keep looking for ways that would be more accessible to people like me. And uh, I, I, I agree. And thank you so much, Reverend Raven, for having me here and giving me this unique opportunity to, to connect with these wonderful folks and uh, get, you know, offer my whatever I can offer them as far as, uh, you know, tools along the tools in the toolbox for the path.
Oh, I love it, Douglas. I hope that, uh, you know, somewhere down the road, down the path, you'll come back and, and visit with us because you have some more interesting things, too, I found out uh, by going to your YouTube channel. That's right. And if you and yeah, we can give that here. Um, if you can't remember it or don't can't write it down, just if you email me, I'll give you that connection. But it's basically youtube.com backslash Douglas Warner, my name. That's all it is, just Douglas Warner, capital D, capital W. And you'll go to my YouTube channel. I got about 50 videos there. Most of them have to do with meditation and kind of navigating life and using some of the tools we talked about. Uh, not a lot in there about labyrinth. Um, I, uh, but some general meditation tools that you can use. And it's much, that's, that's a whole nother discussion. Maybe next time I, I thank you for inviting me back sometime that I would love to, uh, maybe we can talk more about that. Oh, I would love to. And, um, one of my listeners, Dennis, that's down in Sarasota just said, thanks Douglas for, uh, your enlightenment tonight. And, you know, you two might need to connect because he's a, a, a body breath work person himself and a massage therapist. And he does some amazing things too. And he's been on the show. So, you know, well, great. I'd love to hear from you, Dennis, reach out and we can, we can talk. Love yeah, to. That, that'll be awesome. So, well, with that being said, we're going to end the show again, Douglas, before I do, is there any one thing you'd like to share with our listeners for them to take away from all of this? I'm, I would ask, I, I would say this, when you wake up in the morning, and this has worked for me, ask yourself today, how can I become, how can I be today a healing presence? Oh, I love that. That's profound right there. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for another edition of Raising Vibration Radio. Uh, next week, we will have the infamous Rachel Love on here. Have a great and a blessed week. And we're sending you lots of love and energy. Good night, everyone. Good night.